So we go to John uh, chapter 2. John chapter 2, and uh, we come to this passage of... The wedding at Canaan of Galilee, and uh, we have basically three sections here that I want to look at, if I get that far, Uh, but verses 1 through 12 have to do with this wedding, with um, Jesus attending this social event, and uh, verses 13 through 22 have to do with the cleansing of the temple. And then lastly, verses 23 through 25 portray and give to us a biblical perspective of what faith looks like. And uh, this morning, I want to remind you, before we begin in uh, chapter 2 where we left off last time, um, Jesus' words to Nathanael in the latter part of chapter 1 here in John were, you will see greater things than these. Um, Where Nathanael was impressed by the omniscience of Christ, where he seen um, Nathanael under the fig tree, and Nathanael was just blown away. And he said, indeed, you are the Son of God. And Jesus said, you're going to see greater things than these. And then he said, you will see. He said, most assuredly, I say to you, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. You know, I, I take that simply to mean that there will be correspondence from heaven to earth, and from earth to heaven. There will be a message given to the world that will shine into our darkness. You will see heaven open. And this is exactly what we see in the ministry of Jesus Christ. You will see heaven open. And what we see in John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Well, John chapter 2 is part of that. John chapter 2 is the beginning of Christ's public ministry, so to speak. He moved from a more private setting where John was pointing him out and testifying to him and of him to Christ choosing five, I believe, of his disciples. And now we go into a more public setting of this ministry that the Word of God, that Word became flesh and dwelt here, and heaven is open. Heaven is open. God is speaking to humanity through the person of Jesus Christ, and this communication is centered in the Son of Man. The angels of God are ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Heaven will be open and divine revelation and illumination will shine on our darkness. And this, brothers and sisters, is accomplished by the earthly ministry of the Son of God and the Son of Man. So we want to look at this narrative text by section and... We start here in in verse 1. And this account starts with on the third day. And I just want to give a little bit of a of a uh, of a help here as we look at a few of these minor details, I believe. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? 
My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, and, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now, and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother, his brothers and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. So this third day on the, uh, on the third day, I believe, is a reference back to one. 43, where it says the following day Jesus wanted to go to Galilee. So, obviously, he went to Galilee, and on the third day there was a wedding there. So, that's the logical flow of thought here. There was a wedding there, and this is possible why, possibly why he wanted to go to Cana of Galilee. It doesn't specify why he wanted to go there, but it may be that he had an invitation and he was accepting the invitation. Uh, it doesn't say. But one thing here, just a side note, is you think about, he blessed the institution of marriage with his presence. You know, just the simple truth of Jesus Christ attending a wedding and blessing the wedding and being a part of the provision of the wedding all of these things speak to the veracity of the institution of marriage and the fact that a wedding is a good thing. It's a, this is a blessing that even Jesus began his first miracles. At where else but a wedding? He began his public ministry and the signs that spoke of who he was at a wedding. So, one thing that I noticed, I'll point out here, um, and also, by the way, Nathaniel was from Cana of Galilee. Uh, that's, that's, there's a reference in uh, John 21, verse 2, that specifically tells us that Nathaniel was from this little town. And... Uh, Maybe that's another reason why Christ was wanting to go to Galilee, uh, but we, we don't know. That's, there's some uh, interjection there. But uh, interestingly, though, Mary, Jesus' mother, was also at the wedding. It just simply says that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. And notice that it doesn't even name her. Is speaking of this woman, and she is identified in her relationship with Christ. Now, this is a this is a a a point worth noting. Is that when the Catholics speak about Mary and point out her wonderful uh, intercessory nature, according to them, you know they glorify this woman. But when the Scripture speaks of Mary, she is noted as the mother of Jesus. Jesus is always prominent in this relationship. And this is another point while I'm on this topic is when Jesus spoke to her, we might say, well, that was kind of rude. Woman, what is your concern got to do with me? <laughs> Sounds a little abrupt, and it is abrupt, but it may simply be say that Jesus was saying, look, my hour is not yet here. Uh, and MacArthur makes the point that that reference to my hour is not yet here is always pointing to his sacrificial 
time on the cross, his, his death, his, his sacrifice on the cross, that it, my hour has not yet come. But it seems like Christ is telling his mother, it is time for you to look at me as the Son of God. It's, it's like he is, he is distancing himself somewhat in the relationship. He says, woman, what has your concern to do with me? And, uh, and th- those were a, f- a few thoughts in relation to how Christ answered her. And that he, some, some commentators thought that this spoke a bit of rebuke to her. But if it was a rebuke, she um, took it all in stride and was very... Um, was very, very well, it was very well received from her. Uh, I, I don't know that it is a rebuke, but it is a little bit difficult. Uh, it, it is the same language, by the way, that he used on the cross. Woman, behold thy son. Um, but uh, be that what it may here. But she... it. Just a, a, a note here on the mother of Jesus was there. That is, a, that is different language from uh, the old King James refers to Jesus and his disciples were called. Or the new King James says they were invited. But it does not say that about Mary. Maybe there was a, a close relation. Maybe the wedding was fairly close in relation to Mary. Maybe she was a part of the, maybe she was a hostess to some degree, and hence her concern about running out of wine. Again, we don't know, but it doesn't say that, mother, that the mother of Jesus was invited. It just says that she was there. And when they ran out of wine, she brought the problem to Christ. She brought it to him. Now, Whatever this account brings to your mind, I don't know what came up in your mind when, we, when I introduced where I'm going and where I'm preaching out of today. Maybe you have heard this clamor about Jesus turning water into wine and you have just completely lost sight of, of anything else in this account. I don't know. There, there's, such a, there's such a hoopla about Christ making water into wine that it, it must not mean, it must not be a straightforward understanding of the passage. If, you know, why would Christ make water into wine? How, you know, well, just get over it. Christ made water into wine. Just, just accept that fact, and then let's see what the teaching is from this passage. Let's see what we can get out of here. I want to show you at least one outcome from this wedding. And verse 11 is key. Verse 11 is key to this passage. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. The first thing I want to say about this whole wedding is that when Christ attended the wedding, it was a social event that he participated in. And when he did, and he, there was this unique circumstance that they ran out of wine and Christ just made some wine for them. Just miraculously made some wine for them. And when he did that, what did it do? It manifested his glory. And if you deny the fact that he made wine, what does that do? Is that taking away from his glory? That there was no miracle here? Wait a minute. I want to ask you a question. Was this the only provision from Christ at this wedding? Of course not.
It was a feast. If someone overate at this wedding, was Christ responsible? He was the provider. We have here a picture of the providence of God in this wedding. We have a picture of the providence of God. The providence of God was, had provided. Christ had provided the food that these people were feasting on. He had provided the bride too, by the way. He had provided the institution, you see, of this wedding. And we miss this because we're so preoccupied with, with Christ made water into wine. He took something harmless and turned it into something else. Well, there's a picture here, I believe, of the providence of God. Christ demonstrated his power over the laws of nature. He demonstrated his power in providing. He is a, this is a picture of the providence of God. That Christ can... What was, the, what was the main problem here? Humanity had a need and Christ met the need. He did it. And it demonstrated that Christ was not just man. He had power over nature. He took... Brothers and sisters, he took, he, he made a product not found in nature without using its natural elements. That's very similar to what he did in the beginning, that the things which are made are not made by the things which we see. He just spoke them into existence. But here, he took one substance and instantaneously transformed it into something else. And I would make the argument that that's what he's doing every day of every week of every month of every year. He takes the elements of the soil, combines it with the photosynthesis from the sun. He takes one element, mixes it with another, and viola, there here we have, we have a grain of of wheat. It's the provision of God, that it's the laws of God that He has put in place. The Lord just simply bypassed the process here. He bypassed the process of, of natural fermentation and turned water miraculously into wine. And it manifested and revealed the glory of Jesus Christ. As 114 says, We beheld His glory. The glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. As a side note, as we consider verse 11, I want just a side note. The Holy Spirit in giving us this verse made sure to state clearly that this was the beginning of miracles. This refutes any idea of childhood miracles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are in the apocryphal, um, apocryphal books, yes. They, this is the beginning of signs. This is the beginning, as the old King James again uses the word miracles. This is the beginning of signs, and this is a sign that points to something. It points to the Lord Jesus. Let's not get preoccupied with the sign. If we let's let's worship the Lord from this passage, this this sign, this this miracle that He did here at this wedding, was just simply to glorify and bring attention to Him. And interestingly, the problem we have a lot of times is that. We go through life without recognizing where our blessings come from. What glorified Christ here was that everyone knew where the wine came from. Everyone understood that this was a miracle, that he had power to just make wine. And 
what was not understood is that they he he could have he could have gone out into the desert and and provided a feast and the whole wedding party could have just you know feasted in the desert but we don't recognize um this truth that everything that you and I are enjoying throughout life are coming from Christ. He is, in Him all things consist. And so I want to simply look at this as a demonstration of His providence, of His power over nature. Now, God provides for our needs, but notice what Mary says. This is a a lovely truth that we should grab a hold of. This is also, by the way, a picture of how sanctification works. Mary says, okay, you guys have a need. You're out of wine. Whatever he says, do it. (laughs) Don't you love that? Mary had such, such explicit faith in her son, in, this, in, in the Son of God and who he was. Just whatever he says, just go ahead and do it. Don't, don't even ask why. Well, what did he tell them? He said, fill the water pots. When they had filled them to the brim, so there's no... In, there, there's, you know, they, they, they filled them full. And then he said, draw some out of there. And he didn't say, draw some out and bring it to me. Let me taste it. No, of course not. He said, draw some and take it. And the master of ceremonies, not knowing where it came from, but the servants knew where it came from. But this is interesting, is that, This is set up in a way that it's hard for anyone to deny the veracity of this miracle. So the servants were not the same ones who tasted it. They were the ones who poured in the water. And in the process of their obedience, the miracle occurred. In the process of their obedience, the miracle just happened. And they took this to the master of ceremonies, and the master of ceremonies, not knowing where it came from, declared it to be excellent wine. He didn't, it doesn't seem like he even asked them where it came from. It just says that the master of the, of the feast called the bridegroom immediately and says, Wow, you have done well. You have kept the good wine to last. You, you, have, you have outdone us. Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and, and they probably thought it was good wine until they had the best. So interesting that I just want to make a, an analogy here, a, a, uh, an application for us. Do we have a need in our lives? We know that Christ can fill that need. We know that He can provide for us. But don't think that He will just put it in your pocket. Christ wants to... God has a plan for our deliverance, but it includes our engagement. It includes our participation. He says, fill it. We obey. He says, draw out. We obey. He says, serve it. And we obey, and in the process, there is a miracle. And we are suddenly, our needs are met. You have got, we have Christ's instructions to us. But what happens is we tend to say, well, you know, it's all about Christ. I I don't have to do anything. He'll just put it in my pocket. No. We do teach that Christ is every answer for you. But we know also that he expects our engagement, our participation, our obedience. Now, the providence of God enables us to abuse 
his provisions. Would you agree with that? The providence of God enables us to abuse his provisions. Jesus took a harmless substance and turned it into something that can make you drunk. This truth has stumbled so many in this passage. But think about it. Jesus made the fermentation process that allows humanity to make an inebriating wine. Christ also made bread in a very similar way. He took a... He bypassed the process of, of yeast and dough and baking and grinding even the wheat. He bypassed that all and just made enough bread to feed 5,000 people. Now, my point is that all of, all of, um, all of God's provisions are for He has given us richly all things to enjoy. But what sadly what happens, tragically what happens, is that fallen man consistently abuses the provision that God has given to us. He takes the life that God gives him and dishonors him with it. We breathe God's oxygen and then we, we blaspheme him with the breath that we have. This is fallen man. We, we do that consistently. It doesn't just happen with wine. It doesn't just happen with food. It happens with anything that, that, that has Christ left out of it. But when our lives are lived according to what Mary told the servants to do, obey Him. We will bring Him glory. We will bring glory to Christ. We fill, we, we draw, we, we serve, knowing where it comes from. Think with me. You will not soon take what you perceive to be a gift and use it against the giver. You will not soon do that. If someone gives you a good gift, you will not soon take that, a, a gift that you appreciate, and use it against the one who gave it to you. But if we perceive every blessing that comes down to us as a gift from God, as the providence of God, you will not soon take of His natural provisions and distort them and use them for your fleshliness and, and mock God with them. You will not soon do that. The problem is we forget that God doesn't owe us these things, you see. We forget that God doesn't owe us these natural blessings, but He just gives them to us. He, the, the psalm says He daily loads us with benefits. And we begin to forget that these are benefits, that these are blessings to us. And when we are tempted, brothers and sisters, to use the provisions of God in a way not designed by God, we have forgotten where they came from. Or we do not honor Him. It's, it's not received by us as a gift. And so we are unable to see Christ has the authority to turn water into wine. He, he can do that. That doesn't mean that you have the liberty or the, uh, the yes, the liberty to abuse that wine. Of course not. I'm just making the point that all of God's provisions are we, are, we are able to use them wrongly. That's what fallen man does all the time. I want to bring you a passage from Titus 1, where it says, in Titus 1, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. 
They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him. Being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Verse 16, that last verse. If we take, I believe if we're taking the providence of God and using it for ourselves, using it for our own lives, using it to live our lives according to our will, then we become abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. But unto the pure, all things are pure. Brothers and sisters, it has to do with your relationship with the Lord. If your heart is where Mary's heart was, whatever he says, just do it. If your heart's there, then don't worry about the wine, okay? You already know what he said about the wine. Don't be drunk with wine. You already know that. So this section, brothers and sisters, ends. Let me show you where it ends. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And what? And his disciples believed in him. Remember, that is the whole purpose of the book of John, that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And that's what this sign was. It pointed unto his deity. It pointed unto his power over nature, that he can make, he can provide out of water. He can provide anything out of anything, brothers and sisters. Well, let's go to this next section. Section 2 is verses 13 through 22. Let me read this portion. Now this is where the temple is cleansed. And let's not get confused. Let's not confuse this with other temple cleansings. This is a different one. This temple cleansing is the... This account is the only place that this is recorded. This is at the beginning of His ministry. The other temple cleansings were at the end, like at the last Passover before his death. And you'll, you'll see about those in Matthew 12, verses 12 through 17, uh, Mark 11, 15 through 18, and Luke 19, 45 and 46, where Christ also cleansed the temple, but it was something like three years, three years later. So this temple cleansing is different from the other ones recorded in the uh, other Gospels. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. And notice he didn't drive them out because if he had drove those out, they might not have been able to recover them. So, so even that little nugget right there showed the discretion of the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't just open the cages and, say, and just let them fly away. He said, get these out of here. Take them away. The others he herded out with a cord that he had made. So um, he says here, and he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you do to show, uh, to show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Isn't that a beautiful ending to that section again? They believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had said. They, they put the two together and said that they are equally authoritative. 
the scripture of the Old Testament and the words that Christ spoke. And they believed them. They believed them. That's the same ending, by the way, as the section before. That it was meant to enhance and strengthen their faith. Well, so here we have this interesting account of the Lord using, should we say, force. He took a whip, or he found, um, he made a whip of cords and he drove them all out. Now, this indicates this all, in verse 15, he drove them all out. Indicates that it wasn't just the people who sold, uh, it wasn't just the oxen and the sheep, but the people also who were doing business. The, the money changers who sat there doing business. He made this whip and drove them all out. Now, this was the, this was the annual Passover feast, and there was a great demand in Jerusalem, for oxen and sheep. Now, any entrepreneur is going to look for opportunities like this, right? Wherever there's a demand, capitalism seeks to fill it. It's a good thing. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with enterprise, with good enterprise. There's a demand. Instead of it was practical, as long as these were unblemished, that's, they had to be perfect. They had to be quality, unblemished oxen, sheep, and the poor were allowed to um, sacrifice doves. If they couldn't afford a sheep or an oxen, they could use a dove. But there was this demand over the Passover feast, and there were people coming in from all over. You know, any conscientious Jew over 20 years old was going to try to be there. And he came from wherever he was at in the Roman Empire. It may have been, who knows? They came flocking to Jerusalem. It was impractical for you to pack your lamb with you. Right? So there's not really a problem with what was happening in that they were buying sheep but it was going on where? Where worship was to be. It was going on where, where God had instituted His dwelling, where He was to be glorified, where He was to be honored. And listen, the, it was known that the money changers, for instance, they were having to change the money for the temple tax that every, everybody 20 years and older, had to give an annual tax to the temple. And it had to be in a certain coinage. And so it was necessary, if you lived in some faraway providence that didn't use that coinage, that it needed to be changed into something acceptable. The problem was they were exploiting. The, the money changers and the people who were selling these animals were exploiting the need Think about it. If you came from 100 miles away and you had just walked two weeks to get there, you weren't about to go back without sacrificing. You, they had you over the barrel, so to speak. They had you where they wanted you, and they could exploit you because of your need for, to make a sacrifice. Well, listen. Christ said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. This word merchandise is where we get the word emporium. And it has the idea, you know, you know what an emporium is. We, we don't even really use that word anymore. But it is a place that sells all manner of wares. It might be like a warehouse. But you have made my father's house a place to do business. Well, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? We have turned the worship of God in many of our churches into a place of business. I wonder if the Lord would say to, to us here, 
at Believer's Chapel, you have made my father's house what? What is it that you get out of this? What is it that you want from us? What is it that you want from Believer's Chapel, brothers and sisters? Do you want to come here and worship God? Or do you want some other thing that would in some, in some way make something that it shouldn't be, something that it ought not to be? What Jesus said here, stop. He said, take these things away. Do not make my Father's house. And it is the idea of stop making my Father's house a place of business. The house of God is meant to worship God in. That is the, everything should point to that. Everything should be geared toward that. There should have, I'm not sure what the solution would have been for for this problem of, of needing sacrificial animals, but it should have been somewhere else where the lowing of cattle and the baying of sheep and the coins just changing hands, you know, it should have been somewhere else. There should have been a reverent place of, it should have been reverence here. And this is what Christ was, his zeal was, it was for reverence. My father's house should be a place of reverence. As he says in the other temple cleansings, in the other temple cleansing that he did, you have... My father's house is a house of prayer. You have made it a den of thieves. Well, there are a lot of different ways for the house of God or the place where God is meant to be worshipped, where we rob God of what is rightfully His. What is that? Let me ask you, what is that? You have made my father's house a house of entertainment. You have made my father's house a place where my self-esteem gets lifted up. You have made my father's house a place where... And put it in there. If it's not the truth that you're here for, if it's not, well, let me just read a passage of Scripture. In 1 Timothy, I don't think, I'm not sure if I even wrote this passage down here. I think it's 1 Timothy 3 in 15. Let me just show you something that you're familiar with. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 15. I'll read verse 14. So if you back up and get the the context, uh, Paul was writing to Timothy all about putting elders in place, uh, deacons, qualifications for elders, deacons, the the role of men and women in church. Um, You know, you can go back, read 1 Timothy 1, 2, and 3. And then he comes to verse 3, uh, verse uh, 14 of 1 Timothy 3. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. How you ought to behave, is what the old King James says. How you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God the pillar and the ground of the truth. The foundation and mainstay of truth. So, I think if Christ would come, He would tell us, deal in the truth. Deal in the truth. Because it is in the house of God, in the church of the living God, that is where it is. The church of God is built on the foundation of truth and it is held up and maintained 
as a pillar for the, the, for the church. The truth is that pillar. We have no other, really, we have no other substance to work with except the truth. And in this passage in John chapter 2, in regards to this temple cleansing, Jesus is showing forth His authority, not over nature here, but over religion, over the things of God's house. Jesus is making it absolutely and abundantly clear that I have the authority to dictate what goes on in the house of God. There's no one else that has that authority. He is the head of the church. There's no other place. There's no other avenue. There's no other authority. And Christ, I believe, is demonstrating to the Jewish people that in my Father's house, there are certain requirements that I will demand. I will not abide this lack of reverence, this this exploitation of others. I will not abide these things. You have taken and made the things of God into a business proposition that is enriching you. You are lifting yourself up at the expense of the glory of God. Isn't that a a travesty? It is a travesty. Wherever man is profiting at the expense, and think about it, Being outside of the will of God in any area of your life is just that. Profiting at the expense of the glory of God. And so, this I believe is is the message that we can get from here. Is that when Jesus cleanses the temple, he says, certain things are unacceptable in the house of God. And I had to think of what you shared, Brother Paul, about worship. About worship, true worship. And so the zeal for his house has eaten me up. I think uh, just coming back to the text, this narrative, is how was it even possible for Christ just to herd them all out? I mean, there was probably a lot of them. There was probably a, a big flock of sheep and oxen and numerous people. But how is it that there was not a revolt? But notice that when the Jews, they didn't ask him why he did it. They said, well, where are your credentials? How do you have the right to do this? By what authority, in a sense, is what they were saying? You know, show us a sign that verifies to us that you have this authority to do this. And, and he points to his resurrection, which, the, the, you know, they, they have no idea what he's talking about. He, he points to the temple. He said, you destroy this body, which they would. They were going to destroy the temple of the body of Jesus Christ. But Christ was going to raise it back up. And now, brothers and sisters, in a sense, that very same thing happened to the temple. The temple of Jesus Christ, his body and broken for the church, has now replaced the temple of Jerusalem. Praise God. And we are built as living stones in this temple into the person of Jesus Christ. And, but the Jews did not understand that he was referring to the miracle of his resurrection as proof of his authority here. But anyone who has the ability to come back from the dead can, has authority, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was what he said to them, as, and they did not understand, actually used this as a as an indictment against him at his trial and said that you know he made threatening comments about the temple. You know, but it was, yeah, it was completely. And and this was probably a veiled 
saying that the disciples were going to understand and those who did not want to hear would not understand. Christ often did that. And so the disciples, if you notice, his disciples remembered. It's a beautiful thing that when they, after the fact, it was, many, it was, it was maybe three or four years later, after he was resurrected, therefore when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed. There we have it again. It was like Christ was planting seeds that would not bear fruit necessarily until four or five years later. And this is, this is a good reason why you young people, why any of us should be, in de- we should be filling ourselves with the Word of God, even if you don't properly understand it. It will bear fruit in your life. God will illuminate things that you have memorized and read and understood and took in as a young man. He will, they will bear fruit at a later date. We see that here in, uh, in the lives of the disciples. Christ was putting something in there that they did not perceive and understand until years later. That's a, that's a recipe brothers and sisters, for bringing up our children. Put, them, put stuff in there that will bear fruit. Maybe they won't understand it now. But God will bring illumination. But anyway, coming back to the Jews asking, well, well what authority do you have here? And, 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 he's, and he uh they didn't even ask him why he did it. And the thought is that the corruption was obvious. It was obvious to the people that, ref- that reform was needed in temple worship. And Christ came along, and by his zeal and his authority, that there was no standing against him. His re- reformation of temple worship was, was very necessary. And it was obvious to all. That's the thought that that this, but but it didn't create a it did not create a big uproar. It was just that the Jews asked, well, they wanted to know by what uh, by what authority that he uh, he would do this. But he gave them a veiled reference to his resurrection. I want to quickly comment on the last section. Now, this is a very interesting section. Now, when he was in Jerusalem, verse 23, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in man. So, first of all, we, we see that man was, what, was the one who needed testimony of who Christ was. Christ did not need anybody to tell him what was in man. Here is the omniscience of Christ. Here again we have a demonstration of the deity of Christ. He was able to see into the lives and the hearts of men and women. And brothers and sisters, as we think about the Word became flesh, and it investigated who they were, let me just say, Hebrews 4 and verse 12 says a very similar thing. Hebrews 4 and verse 12 says this way, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a what? A discerner of the thoughts and intents of your heart, of my heart. Well, that's what was going on in the person of Jesus Christ. He was able to discern their thoughts and intents of their heart. Uh, You have a passage. I didn't write these down. There are many passages that indicate 
And, and you, you do some cross-referencing about how Christ knew what was in man. He, he, could, he could tell what was in, in their hearts. Um, I, I want to bring at least one here that I read, and I didn't write the reference down. It's in the... Um, um, someone could probably help me, but it's in, the, uh, in the, one of the seven churches in Revelations chapter 3. Um, yes, in the church of Thyatira, he says in verse 23, I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of, to, to each one of you according to your works. Well, I want to point out something here in this, this, these last three verses of John chapter 2. Now, when he was in Jerusalem the Passover, at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name. All right. Remember that word, that word believed. But Jesus did not commit himself to them. Same Greek word. Jesus did not believe in them. Many Many believed in his name because of the, um, you know, the amazing signs that he did. They were intellectually convinced, okay, of that here's something special. You couldn't deny that. But they did not commit their lives to him. They did not, they, they believed, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in there. Here is a, here's a, a, a glimpse here of, of what biblical faith is. Biblical faith is where you commit your whole being to this, whole, to this venture, that if Christ fails, you're going down with him. You have put, you have put all your stock in one basket, you, you, you have no other agenda. You have no other means. It is all or nothing. That is, when, you, when biblical faith is that, all or nothing. And I would ask you, I've heard this m- many times actually. Well, such and such made a commitment. Well, I would like to know, the opposite is stated here. Christ did not make a commitment. He did not commit himself to them. Now maybe that is why the temple needs cleansing. The house of God needs cleansing because we have too many people who have mental agreement but no commitment of life. No, com- no surrender of life. No willingness for the Lordship of, God, of Christ to be exercised over them. Let me tell you, if you're here today in, in that state, Christ has not committed himself to you. If, if you have not just laid everything down for him, if you've not just said, use me as you will, take me, I, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Just make me as one of your servants that I might eat. Brothers and sisters, the house of God needs cleansing sometimes. And coming to the temple to sacrifice means nothing if this is not in place. If this, if this purification of heart, as we read in Titus, has not taken place, then all of your religion will, not, will avail nothing. All of your religion will not suffice to bring you to where you want to go. And so, this glimpse here at the back end of this chapter is... Christ's omniscience is on display. He knows each of us here. He knows our heart. He sees more readily 
into our heart than I see the words in my notes. Then I see you uh, face to face. He sees more easily to our hearts than I can see you. It is, we stand before an all-seeing and all-knowing God. Let's, let's give him the glory that he deserves. Notice that is after all, he manifested his glory. And may our lives do that uh, as well. Well, thank you so much for your kind attention. And uh, I pray that uh, John 2 could be meaningful to you. It could speak to your heart. Uh, it could, we could draw uh, deep principles uh, from this passage. May the Lord bless.